Hello and welcome to Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia. In this episode, we will be discussing housing law. As always, we love to start with a good old-fashioned disclaimer, because what's more fun than disclaiming something? Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm. We provide legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All information is current at the time this podcast is published. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and this information relates only to the law in the state of West Virginia and is provided for informational purposes. While our host and guests are attorneys, the information presented is legal information and does not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. As noted, I'm Clint Adams. I'm your host because Brad Paisley won't return our calls. And in this episode, I will be joined by Katie Markham. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Clint. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Let's uh Talk about uh, you a little bit first. Uh, what uh, what do you do at Legal Aid? I am a project supervisor for Legal Aid's Legal Help for Renters program. So I work with um, attorneys across the state who provide direct advocacy to renters who are experiencing um, problems related to their housing stability. How long have you been in that position? I've been in that position since about November of 2021. I've been at Legal Aid almost five years. Um, and prior to this position, I was a staff attorney in the Elkins Legal Aid office. I was also the former chairperson of Legal Aid's Housing Law Task Force. So in that capacity, I worked with attorneys across the state on housing law issues and training. And uh, which office do you practice out of? I practice in Elkins. What's something that's fun to do in Elkins? I think there's a lot of things fun to do in Elkins, but what are a couple of them? There are a lot of things fun to do in Elkins. Um, one thing that I really enjoy doing is hiking and waterfalls. Um, for folks who don't know, the governor has recently put out the West Virginia Waterfall Trail. It's really, uh, looks to be really fun. You can go ahead and download um, an app, and then you check in, and the number of waterfalls that you check in at um, is uploaded to the site, and then you can get free stuff, like stickers and t-shirts and water bottles. Um, and so if folks are thinking about doing that, Black Waterfalls would be a really good place to start over in Tucker County. It's really a beautiful place to, to spend the day. Talking about all of the fun things that we can do in Elkins, but sometimes you also have to work. So when you're working and doing housing law, let's talk a little bit about some of those sorts of things. Um, let's talk, first of all, about subsidized housing, because some of our clients have subsidized housing. What is subsidized housing? So generally, when we talk about subsidized housing, what we mean is housing where the rent has been reduced because the rent is being paid by a government program and the amount of rent that is charged to a tenant is reduced. Um, so typically we'd be looking at what we call public housing authorities or PHAs, and those are housing complexes where your um, rent might be based on your income. So what does it take to apply for one of these uh, types of uh, housings? Generally, subsidized housing like this is based on your income and your family size. And so they're going to um, collect some information from you at the housing office to make sure that you qualify financially. And then they're going to assign you a unit based on the size of your family, the number of people that are there. 
Now, as you know, we're a statewide program. If someone were interested in trying to locate subsidized housing in their area, how could they find out um, what places would provide that? Sure. I think that the best way to do that would probably be to go to their local housing authority. Um, here in Elkins, I'd send folks over to the Randolph County Housing Authority. They could also apply directly to the housing complex. Um, I see a lot of folks do that. If there's a particular place that they want to live, um, they can contact that housing office and see if they have vacancies and submit an application. Now, do they sometimes not have vacancies? And if they don't have vacancies, what do they do then? The program is really in demand across the state of West Virginia. And so typically, if you want to live in a particular place and there are no spaces, they'll put you on a waiting list. In some places across the state, um, those waiting lists can be quite long, uh, upwards of a year, unfortunately. So um, you may have to look at a couple different places and, or you just may have to be patient while you're waiting on a unit to open up. Now, when you're talking about these kind of complexes and stuff like that, are these townhomes, apartments, houses? What are we talking about? Typically apartments, um, although uh, in the Elkins area, we do have a number of townhouses that are public housing authority properties, but typically we'd be looking at an apartment, one to three bedrooms. So what happens if you're living in public housing and maybe you get a better job, maybe you, uh, you know, were in there while you were going to college or something like that, you graduate college and you, you uh, now your income increases, um, what happens then? If your income increases, then it reaches a certain point um, past the qualifications, then unfortunately you'd be disqualified for public housing um, and you'd have to move. When you sign up for public housing, there are a lot of rules that you're given. Um, and one of those is that you have to update the public housing authority with major changes to your income. So if you get a better job, that would certainly be a, you know, a major change. So if you got a job, you'd need to let them know, um, provide them some new pay stubs and payment information for your new job. And then the public housing authority would recalculate your rent. Um, it may just be a situation where the amount you pay in rent might go up, but if it does increase too much, then you can be disqualified. If you're disqualified, you usually have to leave the property within the next month, unfortunately. Um, and that's just because the programs are, are controlled by federal law and federal grants that have really specific income requirements. So this is not really something that the public housing authority can change. Also, what I'd say is if you if your income does change, you do need to report that. Um, it is an obligation uh, that you have as a tenant. And if you don't do that um, because you think that you might be disqualified, it can be really problematic if they find out later because it is considered fraud. Are there other reasons that you've seen that people are, are being asked to, to leave public housing that's not just that they've uh, increased their income? Um, there are a couple pretty common reasons that I see folks being asked to leave. Um, the first one is, um, and this is uh, you know, nationwide, the big no for public housing is criminal arrests regarding drug use um, on the property particularly that can disqualify you immediately and can disqualify you forever from public housing um, they do take drug-related offenses really seriously particularly manufacturing um, and there's not really a way to get around that um, so i do see that um, not often but it's pretty serious when it happens um, another thing that i see folks kind of getting hung up on is having difficulty with their neighbors and having 
fights or uh, words with their neighbors to the point where it disturbs other tenants. Um, the public housing authority sometimes considers that breaching the peace, especially if the police are called, and that can lead to an eviction notice. Now, where we talk about the drug-related activities, West Virginia recently passed a, a medical marijuana law um, that, that you can be eligible to possess marijuana. Uh, but I think it's important to note that that still remains a federal crime and is still a federal controlled substance. And if you're dealing with federally um, federal property, whether that's on parks or recreations or federally owned buildings, that could still create a problem for you, correct? Absolutely, Clint. Um, that's something that I'd be very careful about and I would Try to talk to an attorney or talk to the housing authority before you got in there um, because you're right it is legal in west virginia now um, but these are federally subsidized properties and they have different rules katie when we talk about um, places uh, are going to to want to set someone out maybe because there's uh, some disturbances or because there's been some criminal activity on the property what steps are going to happen then in the, the subsidized housing world, um, this is really heavily regulated, as we said. Um, there are lots of rules. And so that is beneficial to tenants. Typically, what would happen is you'd get a notice, um, a warning. Depending on your lease, you may have to get multiple warnings. They're going to give you the opportunity to, to correct the problem. And if you get something like that, you need to take it seriously. I also advise folks that if you're living in, in subsidized housing like this, you need to your mail regularly. A lot of the times um, the property managers will put notices on your door someplace that you, they know that you'll see it. But just in case, I mean, it's good practice as an attorney, I advise all my clients to check their mail regularly, but make sure you're checking your mail. So if something like that comes, you're aware of it and you have the opportunity to correct any problems. These are the kinds of things that you want to get out ahead of, um, because when we get on the other side, if you have a negative decision, it's really difficult to reverse those. So we want to be proactive in this situation. So they're going to give you one to three notices um, and then just saying, hey, stop. This is a violation of the lease under this particular rule or this particular regulation. Um, if that doesn't work and the, the problem continues, then they're probably going to give you a, a notice to vacate. Um, something on your door that says you need to leave the property um, and they're going to tell you why. Um, they need to be very specific about what's wrong, why it's a violation, and why they think that, you know, they that they need you to leave. They've given you X amount of notices and you've not responded or corrected the problem. That notice to vacate should provide tenants with the opportunity to request what we call a fair hearing which is an informal meeting with the public housing authority staff. So you can explain what's going on and explain your side of the story. Maybe you didn't really understand. Maybe there were some particular circumstances that have been corrected. Maybe you need an accommodation because of a disability that you might have. Um, so you do have the, process, the, the opportunity to request a fair hearing and that should happen pretty quickly. Like I said, it's an informal meeting. Um, but it gives you the opportunity to respond to the allegations, present any evidence or other information that you think that the housing authority might want to know. And if that still doesn't work, then the housing authority would uphold the notice to vacate, ask you to leave. And if you don't leave, they're going to um, need to file a petition for wrongful occupation out at the magistrate court's office. That is a court action. Um, you would be served with that by a process server, um, and at that time you'd be notified of a hearing. You'd have the opportunity to go to the hearing, present 
evidence to a third party, um, the magistrate, and then the magistrate would make a decision. Magistrate could side with the tenant and tell you that you're allowed to stay or could tell you that you need to leave and order your removal from the property. So when we talk about that, is there always the opportunity for a fair hearing or does the housing authority sometimes go straight to magistrate court if, for example, there's been a severe felony committed by a tenant or something like that? That's absolutely right, Clint. This is the, the process that I just described is kind of what usually happens, but there are some infractions or problems that are so severe that the housing authority is permitted to go directly to magistrate court. And like we talked about before, criminal or drug-related activity is a really hard bar for the public housing authority because of federal law. So that would be the kind of thing that would be a serious breach of the lease that would automatically get you to magistrate court. So in these cases, we're talking about where you would live in likely an apartment complex that would be run by a housing authority of some sort or or some company that contracts with the housing authority. Are there other options where maybe you don't have to pay the full value for your rent that are available for tenants? Sure. Um, in West Virginia, what I see a lot is folks wanting to get on the Section 8 program um, or the voucher program. You'll hear it called lots of different things, but what we're um, I think the official name is the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program. So Section 8 is a federal program from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. They do provide some subsidies for public housing authorities like we just talked about. But what folks sometimes would like to get is a voucher, um, which allows them to take that subsidized rent anywhere in the state um, that a landlord would accept it and get their rent reduced. So the government pays part and then the tenant pays the other part under the voucher. And this could be at a house, at a trailer, at a townhome, um, at, you know, a different type of housing unit other than an apartment complex. So this can be really um, beneficial for folks. Are landlords required to take a Section 8 voucher? Landlords are not required in West Virginia to take a Section 8 voucher. Um, the program has a lot of requirements and qualifications, and sometimes landlords don't want to participate in the process, um, and they absolutely do not have to under West Virginia law. So it's important that a, a tenant who has a Section 8 voucher finds a landlord who is willing to work with them and to comply with the program. Now, if... Uh... I wanted to apply for Section 8 housing. How would someone do that? You go to your local housing authority. And again, here in Elkins, the Randolph County Housing Authority, they have a department, the Section 8 department with their own manager, and you'd complete an application um, for the Section 8 program. And that would be the same thing. There would be eligibility requirements based on income and assets, right? You can't you can't own a million dollar house and, Absolutely. and get Section yeah, 8. You right? can't be a millionaire and get Section 8. Um, they collect some information and take your application. Um, the program is really popular in West Virginia and across the nation. Um, and the amount of vouchers that we have to give out are determined by the federal government. Our local housing authorities and even the state of West Virginia doesn't have anything to do with that. They get these numbers from the federal government saying, hey, you have 10,000 vouchers. Go ahead and hand them out across the state. So if there are vouchers that are available, you apply, you um, get approved, hopefully. And then you need to, to complete some 
some tenant training courses about your family obligations as a voucher holder, um, then they'll give you your voucher and tell you to go out and find a place. If there are no space, no vouchers available, you can get put on what's called the list. You'll hear that a lot, the Section 8 list, which is just a waiting list um, for folks who, who qualified and have been approved. But unfortunately, we don't have any vouchers to pass out right now. Now, when we talked about this, we said if you're in a, we talked about it earlier, Katie, where you're in a public housing situation, you're going to have to move out if your income changes. Do you necessarily have to move out if you're renting a place based on Section 8 and getting a voucher and, and then you're no longer eligible for the voucher? Right, you do not because ultimately the the place that you're renting is owned by a private landlord. So if it's a situation where your income changes, you get a much better job, graduate college, and you no longer qualify for the Section 8 program, you could agree with your landlord to stay in the property and just pay the market rent or the full value. Um, so that can be really advantageous for folks who may be looking at a change in income, but who need the benefit of the Section 8 program right now. Now, we talked about a number of the Section 8 restrictions. One of those is the condition of the property. As you noted, some landlords uh, aren't don't want to keep their property to the standards that are required by Section 8. If you're receiving Section 8, what are some of those standards? So the standards that you're talking about, you, you might hear called um, housing choice standards. The, the Section 8 program at the Housing Authority actually has an inspector that goes out to each property that wants to have a Section 8 voucher applied to it and inspects the property. And they're going to look at Basic things, is there a roof? Are there windows? Do the windows lock? Um, but they're going to look at some specific things too. You know, are are there any problems with the electrical? Are the outlets all working? Um, are there any holes in the floor? Is there um, a safe entry to the property? I see a lot of times um, properties may not have appropriate handrails, right? Um, it's something that we don't really think about a lot. And if you're you're not in a position where you need a handrail, you wouldn't notice it. But it's important for the Section 8 program. So that's something that might have to be corrected. Handrails might have to be added, that kind of thing. So what if you're in a Section 8 property and something happens? I don't know, maybe the furnace goes out and the landlord refuses to fix it. What remedies might you have? Well, the landlord has an obligation under their own contract with the housing authority to maintain the property to that the housing choice standards. So the first thing I would advise folks to do is, is to go ahead and, and talk to the landlord, obviously. Um, but if that doesn't work, I'd advise them to go talk to the public housing authority some or the housing authority. Sometimes um, those folks can make a call to the landlord and explain the standards and remind them that this is something that they've agreed to do and kind of gently push them to to go ahead and get that taken care of. Because ultimately, if there's a problem like that, like we were talking about, you know, like, let's say the furnace goes out and the landlord doesn't fix it, Section 8 is not going to allow the tenant to stay in that property because they're not going to pay for it because it doesn't meet their standards. So it's really important for the landlord to go ahead and fix these things in a timely manner because if not, they're going to lose a tenant and a voucher. So let's talk about the same situation. Maybe the furnace goes out, so the it's in the middle of the winter and the house is now arguably uninhabitable. What rights would you have if you didn't have Section 8? So if you were a private tenant just paying your rent out of your paycheck, um, in that situation, it would depend on what time of year it was. Um, West Virginia has you know, a series of, of laws and regulations that we generally call the warranty of habitability. 
Um, just fancy words saying that there's a, a specific series of things that a landlord needs to provide to a tenant if they're going to accept money for somebody living in their house, right? Basic things. Um, the place has to be habitable, has to be fit to live in. So we're looking at things like running water, <laughs> a roof, um, you know, really, really basic. You can't have a lean-to and rent it out for $1,000 a month and say that this is a rental in West Virginia. You have, as a landlord, you have an obligation to provide tenants with a decent place to live. One of the requirements under the warranty of habitability specifically relates to heat. We live in West Virginia. I live up in the mountains in Elkins. It can get pretty cold and snowy out here. So from October 1st to April 1st, a landlord who's renting a property has an obligation under the law to provide heat to their tenant. Um, so if the furnace goes out on December 1st, um, tenants need to let their landlords know and the landlords need to fix it pretty quickly. Now, is that something that the landlord can get out of by signing the lease and, and making the tenant responsible for that? Absolutely not. In West Virginia, that's a protection that our legislature has put out for tenants. Um, so the warranty of habitability cannot be waived in a landlord-tenant situation. You can't modify it. Um, the, the tenant has a right to live in fit and habitable housing, and the landlord has an obligation to do that if they're going to be renting out the property. With that being said, there are some exceptions, right? If you have, let's take this situation we're talking about with the broken um, heater. If the tenant's child stuck a toy in the heater and blew it up, the landlord might not be responsible for that because the tenant caused that problem, right? The tenant's family caused that problem. It's not the fault of the landlord that the furnace quit working, the tenant damaged it. So in that situation, the tenant might be responsible to repair the heater. So Katie, as we talk about private landlord-tenant situations where you're renting a property, uh, do all of these have a written lease? They do not. In West Virginia, it is not a requirement that um, there be a lease in writing for any tenancy. And a lot of times there's not. Um, a lot of times you'll You'll move into a place and you kind of have a verbal agreement with your landlord that you're going to pay the rent on the first of the month and it's going to be $500 and and that's it. So there may not be a written lease that requires the tenant to stay for a period of time or puts any additional obligations on the landlord. And that's perfectly okay in West Virginia. Um, under the law, we would call that a periodic tenancy, which just means that the tenant pays rent for the month and has the right to stay there for the month. And that at any point, the landlord or the tenant could decide that this arrangement isn't working and could move out. Do you see cases where people might start with a written lease, maybe a year long lease, and then at the end of the year, they don't sign a new lease and they just stay in as a holdover? All the time. Um, sometimes the, the lease agreement might contemplate this and might say, <clears throat> you know, if the, the tenant is still there, the next month, we're going to do another lease for a month to month under the same terms. Um, but sometimes it doesn't. And we get into the situation we just talked about where we're in a periodic tenancy. When we're in that periodic tenancy, does the landlord have to renew it? If your lease comes due, do they have to sign a new lease or do they have to let you stay? They they don't. Um, if you're in a periodic tenancy and you pay rent and the landlord accepts your rent, you're entitled to stay for, for the period. But the thing about a periodic tenancy is that it can be terminated by either party for any reason. 
the landlord or the tenant has an obligation to provide appropriate notice to the other person if they want to terminate it. So for a month to month tenancy, you'd need to to let the other party know with at least one month's notice before the end of the previous month, you'd want to let them know in writing, hopefully, that you would desire to move out at the end of the next month. And that would be appropriate. And there'd be no legal obligations. And that goes for the landlord or the tenant. Now, the only exceptions to that would be if it were retaliatory eviction, if, for example, a tenant contacted code enforcement to enforce their legal rights, or if the tenant um, or if the landlord was evicting the tenant as a result of some protected category such as race, religion, gender, sexual identity, things of that nature, correct? Right. If that were the situation, then some different rules would apply. So that that would be if the tenancy just ended. In other words, both people just say they don't want to continue the tenancy or one of them says they don't want to continue the tenancy and there's no legal requirements. Um, a lot of times in the eviction process, there are alleged breaches of the lease, right? What are some of those that you commonly see? Um, a big one I see would be breach of the peace or disturbing other tenants. Um, difficulties between tenants, between neighbors can absolutely rise to a level where a landlord just says, hey, this is not working out. Um, the police have been called a lot. I've been down here a lot. Somebody's going to have to go. So that's really common one. Um, unfortunately, folks who, who get behind regularly on their rent, um, who pay rent late, I also see um, private landlords saying, hey, I, I can't do this. So when that happens, when there's been some sort of a breach, the landlord will file an action in magistrate court, and then the tenant will be notified of that. What happens from that? Um, so after the tenant is notified, the tenant has a right to file an answer um, to explain their side of the story and to appear at a hearing um, in front of the magistrate, present any evidence or witnesses that they might have specifically regarding the allegations. The tenant can also counterclaim against the landlord if there are um, problems or incidents that the tenant feels like the landlord has done. So what we might see, we talked a little bit earlier about the warranty of habitability, is a landlord might evict someone for not paying their rent, but then the tenant might counterclaim or bring their own suit that they'd have to present evidence on saying that they didn't pay their rent because the landlord didn't give them a habitable place to live um, and counterclaim for a breach of the warranty of habitability. So let's talk about the land contracts. We see that a fair amount at Legal Aid of West Virginia. Um, what do you, what would you define as kind of a, a land contract? So what I would define as a land contract is when someone's trying to purchase a property um, from another person and they're making payments on it directly to that person. We're not going out and getting a mortgage or a loan to pay it off in full and then paying the bank back. We're making an installment payment to the owner of the property and eventually we're going to pay a certain amount of money and the deed is going to be transferred over to the new owner. That's what I consider a land contract. Are there some pitfalls to this type of an arrangement? There certainly are. Um, I think that if you want to do a land contract, it can be really beneficial. Um, you know, if you don't have the money or maybe don't qualify for a loan. I think that anybody who is interested in a land contract should talk to an attorney before they they get into that agreement because there are a lot of problems that can come up with it. Katie, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the visit. Uh, this is some really beneficial information about the housing uh, laws as it relates to the state of West Virginia. Thank you for having me, Clint. It's been a pleasure. If you're interested in information about subsidized housing, contact your local housing authority. And for more information about tenants' rights, check out our website, legalawv.org. 
Thank you for joining us today. This has been a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.